Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. We're going to talk about the trial today. The jurors were put on a train in New Bedford and they went to Fall River, walked up to the Borden house, and toured the property. This is typical in trials, often murder trials or major trials. The attorneys go along with the jury, both sides, the marshals or the sheriff's deputies, whoever's in charge of keeping the jurors in line and escorting them back and forth to the hotel if they're sequestered, which they were in this case. It's basically an opportunity for the jury to go through, and to the extent they're told anything, it's neutral evidence. This is Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom. That's, that's all you're going to say. You know, this is Lizzie's bedroom. This is the parlor. That kind of thing. So I give the judge and the lawyers credit for arranging this. I think it was important for the jury to do this. I think it's a good idea in most cases for a jury to actually see the scene of a crime, especially in a situation like this where the layout of the house was unusual because there were no hallways. I just think this was a good thing to do. So that was the start of the case. One of the things that was interesting is that, as I may have mentioned, the prosecution brought in a civil engineer named Kiernan to testify about distances and measurements. He's testifying about measurements, how far it is from the police station to the Borden home, etc. And the defense either hired him separately to come back to the Borden home, or while he was there, they convinced him to engage in a couple of brief experiments. And they had him take his employee and have his employee hide in one of the closets down in the hallway on the first floor at the front of the house to confirm that, first of all, a man could comfortably go into this closet and shut the door. And there was plenty of room but also that if somebody happened to be in the closet and wanted to listen to the occupants of the house or look out of the door and monitor the activity in the house, this engineer, Mr. Kiernan, confirmed that when his employee was in the closet with the door slightly ajar, he wasn't able to see anybody in there at a distance of about 10 feet. It was too dark in the closet. So there was testimony to show from a neutral witness that the only way to see a body in the guest bedroom would have been on the stairs, that you couldn't see the body on the other side of the bed if you were standing on the landing, that sort of thing. The defense had the opportunity to question Seaver not just about his disastrous lack of memory and the fact that he lost his notes regarding the dresses and the blood the blood stains that he was supposed to measure. But they also had him testify about the fact that he worked to a certain degree with private detective McHenry. And this was good for the defense because it allowed Robinson to remind the jury about that disastrous newspaper article in October run by the Globe that involved McHenry, where McHenry was at the center of that story. And even though the police did not get linked to McHenry and they weren't, their role in this disastrous scam slash sting was not revealed. The fact that Robinson could show that McHenry was working with the Fall River police, that he was seen with Marshal Hilliard by some of the officers down at the Central Police Station, that he was obviously enlisted by the Fall River police It reminded the jurors that the police had brought this unscrupulous, disreputable guy onto the force and had tried to use him. Also, it reminded the jurors of the article, which in turn ended up engendering sympathy for Lizzie. After the Globe withdrew the allegations and and apologized, 
people felt a lot of sympathy for Lizzie. They felt that this was a terrible, cheap shot, that this was a reckless thing for the Globe to do. It was just helpful to the defense. And it's just one more example of how Hilliard kept shooting himself in the foot. There was Lubinsky's testimony. Lubinsky was the ice cream peddler. I talked about him a little bit, but let me give you some more detail. Lubinsky was driving his ice cream cart down 2nd Street on the morning of August 4th, and he was running late. He got to the stables where the horses were boarded, where the cart was kept, half an hour late. Normally, he was on the road by 10.30. This morning, he was he didn't get there until about 11. He goes in, and he goes right up to the owner or manager, Mr. Gardner, and he says, I need the cart. I need the horses now. And Mr. Gardner goes, sorry, the horses get fed at 11. So Lubinsky's kind of hopping up and down saying, hurry, hurry, I need to get going. And so Lubinsky gets gets in the cart, the horses are hitched, and he's going down the street. And somewhere between 5 after 11 and 10 after 11, he sees a woman walking from the direction of the barn to the house on the Borden property. And he knows it's not Bridget because he had sold ice cream to Bridget in the recent past. So when the news of the murders gets spread and the papers have published the headlines and you know everybody's talking about it in town, Lubinsky says to his boss, I was driving by the Borden home and I saw a woman walking from the barn to the house and it was sometime between five minutes after 11 and 10 after 11. So Mr. Lubinsky's boss contacts the police and the police send down Malaley. Malaley goes down and interviews Lubinsky. Lubinsky told Malaley, normally I go up to the stables at 10.30, that's the normal time, but this day, August 4th, it was 11, I was running late. Malaley's down talking to Lubinsky, I think, August 8th, so four days after the murders. The memory is fresh for Lubinsky, and he's clear about the time frame. It sounds like Malaley didn't really follow what Lubinsky was saying, and Malaley just writes into his notes, 10.30. Lubinsky was in the cart at 10.30. And that doesn't match up with the time of the murders. That, that's half an hour too early. So the police do nothing more. Part of the problem in defense of Malaley, part of the problem may have been that Lubinsky was an immigrant. And even though he spoke English, he was not completely fluent. And he was, it could sometimes be a little bit difficult for him to understand or to express himself. Somebody also went up and spoke to Mr. Gardner at the stables, and I don't know if that was the defense team, if that was Mr. Jennings or his assistant Phillips, or whether it was the police, but somebody goes and talks to Gardner, and Gardner says, yeah, I distinctly remember Lubinsky was up here pestering me. I told him, it's not my fault you're late. The horses have to eat. You're going to have to wait. And I know Lubinsky left sometime between 5 and 10 after 11. I have a clear memory of that. And then Mr. Gardner had other reasons to be paying attention to the time. He had a customer or a salesman. He had to get him down to the bank to help him break a $100 bill. And then he had to get someone to the train. So he was paying close attention to the time that morning. So Gardner backed up Lubinsky. And that's important. If it was just Lubinsky, you could say Lubinsky had his times mixed up. But when Gardner confirms and says, yeah, this is why I couldn't send him out at 11. The horses get fed at 11. It just all had the ring of truth. So in the end, the way that Knowlton handles it in his closing argument is he says, Malaley's right. Malaley written down 1030. So it must have been 1030. That's what Lubinsky told him. It's Lubinsky who's confused, number one. And number two, even if Malaley got it wrong, or even if Lubinsky was going down the street at five or 10 after 11, that doesn't mean that Lizzie's innocent. Lizzie could have committed the murders or been involved somehow and just gone out to the barn and come back just hoping somebody would see her. But 
It's interesting that this testimony, I thought, was that the defense put presented to the jury was, was pretty convincing. And it was an example of the sort of problems that the prosecution had in this case, similar to the testimony about the, the people in the loft of the barn. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. I'm going to switch to Hilliard. Hilliard testifies. I think the only time that Hilliard was really in the house for any significant amount of time in the Borden house was Saturday after the murders when the Fall River police did a three and a half hour search, starting the roof and going down to the cellar. And I believe it was Hilliard, Fleet, Seaver, Dolan, and Jennings. There may have been one or two other police officers, but certainly those five. Hilliard's testifying at trial about the search, and I think it was on cross-examination, he is asked, tell us, Marshall Hilliard, tell us where there is running water in the Borden home. Where are there faucets? He's not sure. He says, I'm pretty sure, or I think there's a tap in the cellar. There may be one in the kitchen. I'm not sure whether there are any other bathrooms. He might have said, I don't think there's any running water outside the kitchen in the cellar, but That was the best he could do, and I'm not even sure it was that clear. He may have said, I can't tell you whether there's running water anywhere else in the house. So why is this important? Well, first of all, the killer, whoever the killer was, presumably did some washing up. Presumably. Washed hands off, washed his face, her face. Would go to a sink and wash off the hatchet. Might wash off other articles. If there was a rubber coat or a rubber hat, that would have to be washed off. It doesn't mean that they would have caught the murderer if Hilliard had known where the running water was. What it means is that Hilliard's not paying attention to the details. And Hilliard is the representative of the Fall River Police. He is the spokesman, and he's the one who's making the decisions. He's the one who went and got the arrest warrant. He's the one who went over to the Borden house Saturday night and said, we want everybody to stay indoors. He's the one who was present on August 11th when Lizzie was arrested. He's the one who's speaking to the press all the time. It's Hilliard who's talking to the reporters. Part of his job is to have a really good understanding of the circumstances of the case. If he goes in front of the jury and says, I don't really, I can't really say where there's running water in the house. And one of the big questions is, how did the murderer clean up and not get caught? If it was Lizzie, how did, where, where and when and how did she wash herself off? If it was an outside killer, where and when and how did he rinse himself off, if at all, so that he wouldn't be detected walking away from the property or walking down the street. It's an important issue. One of the things that I think successful leaders have, when I say leaders, I mean people that run police departments, run universities or run businesses, whatever the organization is, one of the things they often have in common is they have really high standards, they pay enormous attention to detail, and they keep the employees on their toes. And it might not be pleasant to work for them. It might not be pleasant to be in that atmosphere. But this is what makes business a success often. It's this attention to detail. I'm not saying that's the only way to be a leader. That's not, I'm not saying that's the only way. But you certainly need to have standards. You certainly need to know what's going on. You cannot be an effective leader of an organization, whatever it is, a police department or any other type of organization, if you don't know what's going on. You have to have a really clear idea of how this business operates or anything important that's happening to your organization. You need to be on top of it. 
There was nothing more important that ever happened in the course of Hilliard's career than the Borden murders. If there was ever any case he should have been on top of, it was the Borden case. And if he comes into court and says, I can't tell you where the running water was located in the house, that's a problem. Just like all the other things I've said about his investigation, this is just more of the same. And while I'm on this topic, let me just talk about, again, about the prosecutors. This is on them, too. This isn't just on Hilliard. This is the kind of thing they need to get straight with Hilliard before he testifies. They need to go over all these details. And it would be obvious to them pretty quickly when they were preparing him for testimony that he didn't have the kind of grasp of the details that he needed to have. And at that point, you as a prosecutor say, I need you to go back over the paperwork. We're going to talk again in 48 hours or whenever. You set up another time to sit down and talk to him and you say, you're going to have to come in here and have a much better command of the evidence and of the facts. This isn't okay. You can't testify in front of the jury that you don't know where the faucets were in the house when one of the major issues is, how did the killer clean up? You've got to know that. And if you don't understand why, that worries me. You know, even acknowledging that Moody was put in a difficult position and not given enough time to prepare the case it still falls on the prosecution. And if it doesn't fall on Moody's shoulders, if Moody did everything he possibly could in the two weeks that was allotted, it falls on the shoulders of Pillsbury and Knowlton for not anticipating this, not giving Moody more time, not lining this up farther in advance. The one thing that the prosecution can absolutely control is how well prepared they are and how well prepared their witnesses are. That they can control. And they did a pretty mediocre job in that respect. There's one other thing I want to say about Hilliard. He's talking about what a thorough search they did on that Saturday afternoon into Saturday evening. And he goes, in fact, at one point we were in Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom and the chimney came up from the kitchen and it ran up through the Borden's bedroom and went up to the attic and then obviously ended up outside above the roof. And there was some kind of space between the chimney and floorboards. There was a little bit of space. There was like a gap of some kind. And Hilliard's talking about how thorough the search is, and he goes, yeah, in fact, it was so thorough that at one point we had a long stick. We, the police, had a long stick, and we'd stuck it down in this space next to the chimney, and we're kind of like wiggling the stick back and forth, and, you know, we're trying to find out if there's anything down there. And I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, but immediately when I read that testimony, in the context of how inept these people were, instantly an image came to mind of monkeys in one of those nature shows, the, the chimp with the twig, sticking the twig down into the termite nest and then pulling it out and licking the termites off the stick and putting it back down. You know, what we've got here is a bunch of chimps in police uniforms sticking their twigs down into a termite nest. That's how I see these guys. Let me talk a little bit more about the defense testimony they had Dr. Handy testify. Remember, Dr. Handy was the guy that rented the cottage to these women that Lizzie was going to visit in Marion. I'll tell you what Handy's testimony was in a second, but the prosecution tried to impeach him or minimize his impact by saying that because he owned this cottage and these women were apparently renting it from him, that somehow that meant that his testimony could not be trusted. I think that's 
a bit of a stretch. But anyway, Handy testified that on the morning of the murders, between 20 minutes after 10 and 20 minutes of 11, he was driving his carriage down 2nd Street right near the Borden house. And he saw a pale young man in front of the Borden house walking up the sidewalk and acting very strange. He was agitated. He looked confused. He was looking down at the pavement. There was something about the way he was acting that was so alarming and so arresting that Dr. Handy actually stopped the carriage and pulled it to the side of 2nd Street and looked at the guy. The guy was sort of indecisive. He was so agitated. He was so pale. He was almost oscillating. Like he couldn't decide whether to turn around and head back in the other direction. And it was not something that Handy normally did. He didn't normally pull his carriage over, stare at strange civilians or strange citizens walking up and down the sidewalk. So he actually went and reported this to the police the day of the murders or the day after the murders. And they never found this guy. The police tried to make it sound like they knew who it was, but Handy said, no, it's not who they think it is. Handy also said he wasn't positive, but he was pretty sure he'd seen this guy recently before the murder, sometime in the a week or two before the murders in the neighborhood, but not acting quite as strangely. It doesn't mean this guy had anything to do with the murders. It was just a witness that the defense called. It was some evidence they brought in. They had testimony from a guy named Jerome Borden, who was not a close relative of Lizzie and her family. He was a businessman, a local businessman who happened to come to the house shortly after the murders, maybe even the day after the murders, because he had he had some kind of business to discuss with the Borden family having to do with lumber. And he comes to the front door and he just pushes the door open and walks in. And the point of this testimony was that the spring lock was defective. John Morse testified that it was defective. He also discovered this. And apparently Lizzie and her family knew that if you did not shut the front door really tightly, the spring lock didn't engage, that the lock, the spring that pushed the lock into the male part of the lock into the female part, the spring that would push it in automatically, that the way the door fitted, that the spring only worked if you pulled the door shut really tightly. And that often what happened was the person shutting the door, either leaving or coming in and shutting the door, didn't shut it tightly enough. So the point of all this was that if at some point on the morning of August 4th, the bolt had not been pulled across the door, if it hadn't been engaged, and if the deadbolt had not been locked, someone could have gotten in and out. The problem with that is that it seems like every time anybody looked at the front door, that that the bolt had been slid across, at the very least. And we know at 10.45, not only had the bolt been slid across on the inside, but the deadbolt had also been engaged. Anyway, they brought him in as a witness. And then they brought in four witnesses to testify that they had either been in the loft of the barn prior to 11.45 on August 4th, or they had heard people up in the loft of the barn prior to 11.45. Now, we know that Fleet got there at the earliest at 11.45, and we know that Medley did not go into the barn until after Fleet arrived. Medley wasn't in the barn until at the earliest seven or eight minutes after Fleet arrived because Medley had to go into the house, see the bodies, see the bucket with the bloody rags in the cellar, speak briefly to Lizzie, and then go back out to the barn. And he didn't go into the house until after Fleet arrived, and Fleet arrived at 11.45. So you do the math. I may have said he might have been in the barn as early as 11.48. It looks like he probably wasn't in the in the loft of the barn until after 11.55. So he probably gets up there 11.55, 11.56, somewhere in that range. He's up in the loft of the barn for four minutes. He comes down. Fleet comes out of the house right around that time. And they have that brief conversation, and Fleet sends him to the train station. 
the defense has a reporter who says that he was downstairs in the barn before Fleet arrived, and he heard people walking around in the loft. And then we have two teenagers who say they got there just as Doherty was running out to call the marshal and tell him that it was a double murder. So that would have been at the latest 1140. And those teenagers said they tried to get in the house and Sawyer refused to let them in. And so they went straight to the barn and they dared each other to go up in the loft and they went up in the loft. So they're up in the loft if they're telling the truth, just about 1140. And then there's a guy who's a steam engineer named Clarkson who's over at the property anywhere between 1130 and 1140. And he says he has a brief conversation with Sawyer at the side door. He has a conversation with one or two other people in the yard. Then he goes up into the loft. If he gets there at 11.30, he's up in the loft by 11.40. If he gets there at 11.40, he's up in the loft before 11.50. He testifies that when he's up in the loft, there are already three people up there, and they're not police officers, apparently. So the defense got all these witnesses in, and then they had Sawyer testify that he knew Clarkson, that he saw Clarkson there very early, that he could confirm that Clarkson was one of the first people on the property, that Clarkson got there 10 or 15 minutes before Fleet did. I think the defense presents some really strong evidence that there were multiple people up in the loft of the barn before Medley got there. It's hard to say that these defense witnesses were mistaken. There there are too many of them and their time frames are too clear. You'd have to say that they're lying. And that's a tall order because Clarkson, I don't think, had any reason to lie. And the reporter had no reason to lie, I don't think. It's not helping him to come in, to fabricate a story where he said, I was downstairs in the barn and I could hear people walking around in the loft and it was five minutes before a fleet got there. The teenagers, as a matter of fact, say that when they came out of the barn and they were out in the yard, that was right when Fleet arrived and Fleet was the one who told them to get off the property. So it just has the ring of truth. It's just more evidence, I think, that Medley was not being honest. A couple other things. Sawyer also testified that he said there were a great many citizens, private citizens in the yard before Fleet arrived at 11.45. So even though that doesn't prove that there were people in the loft of the barn, it just shows there were a lot of citizens on the property walking around, looking at things, poking around. It makes it more likely that these four defense witnesses were telling the truth. He also said that Lizzie looked distressed, that she really did look upset. I think he used the word distressed. Finally, There was a witness, this is not a particularly important piece of evidence, but it's interesting. There was a witness who testified, I think it was Mrs. Holmes, that on at least one occasion in the year before the murders took place, she saw Lizzie and Mrs. Borden come to church together, arrive together, sit together, and leave together. So to the extent that the government wanted the jury to believe that Lizzie and her stepmother were never seen in public together under any circumstances. If Mrs. Holmes was to be believed, this wasn't entirely true. Next episode, I'm going to get into the closing arguments. And then after that, we'll have the psychiatrist and then it will be time for Sherlock. I hope you join me next time. I appreciate you listening. And until next week, take care.